0: Well, hello, everybody. Um, we've got just give you a quick summary, and then I'll introduce uh, Dr. Woods to uh, do the main presentation. Uh, in 2021, uh, we had an increasing number of students. And what was encouraging is that the, um, the, 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 it was more younger men seeking theological training then previously, we had older men, retired people that came to seminary to be trained to be Sunday school teachers. And that's an important shift because the crisis in our country is that there's a very severe lack of trained pastors. And we need young men who are willing to take the challenge to get the training to do that. And that means economic sacrifice and so on. And this this has been difficult, particularly with that age group. And uh, I'll go into just make a few comments about that. But that's the target that we want. Um, I was just telling Dr. Woods um, that uh, there's an older plumber in our church for an analogy to what we've got in, in this pastorate thing. And he told me, he said, you know, in our county here in Maryland, the average age of a plumber is 60. Um, where are we going to get plumbers from? It isn't even in the vocational school. So how do we train plumbers? Is that an essential thing or not? Well, pastors are essential. And so that's why it's so important that we we have training. It's not it's an option that we've got. And uh, last year, uh, it was, I think it was last year, uh, we had the state of New Mexico uh, send us a letter that said the the seminary that you have is not accredited, and because it's not accredited, uh, you can't give theology degrees. So thankfully, we had John Eidsmo, our lawyer and attorney, and he gave a turn back to a, various reasons for it, but the, the whole culture is that somehow the messianic state has this exalted level of itself. It has wisdom. Now, what kind of wisdom does the state have to evaluate education? Um, what special skills do they have to ed- to, to evaluate this? And so we, more and more we're seeing the problem in our culture. It's almost like Daniel and his three friends. We've got young people who are really cut off very subtly from the authority of their parents and subjected to transforming education, that we have to ne- negate the bond that parents have with their children. This is why we have stuff going on in the schools. I had to go before our local board of education several times, and I guess that makes me a domestic terrorist. Um, But we're more concerned about parents that object to what's going on with their children in school than we're concerned about mobs that burn buildings down in cities. So that's the culture we've got. And into that culture will have to come these men who are going to be pastoring in the middle of this. So I I just wanted to throw out that as a challenge. We're looking for young men who really are, in one sense, serious cultural rebels that are going to stand against the pressures of a messianic state that is intent on establishing a religion. And we have to be aware of this. The First Amendment, is seems it only applies, we use it against the Christians. Uh, how about using the First Amendment against humanism That is a basic religion that's tax supported, by the way. Uh, I haven't noticed the tax support for churches recently, and we won't want that. But that's the kind of environment that we have to be faithful to train young men to have to cope with that. So uh, summary, I went back to uh, Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, Hugh uh, Peter, who Summarize the whole issue of the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming society, not the messianic state transforming society. It is the gospel of Christ, not a political gospel that saves. Here was a word, very brief. He said, good men, not good laws, transform a society. And the gospel is what makes good men and good women. So that's the heart. The pastors are the key to train that. So we want those who are see clearly that the gospel of Christ is not just a, a religious thing, off in a religious compartment. It is the essential life of every culture, and so we see that historically and so on. So that's what we're targeting. We want young people who are basically uh, have understood the gospel against the messianic state. They understand that they are going to be in a war. They're going to be attacked. We have uh, attacks upon churches. Uh, pastors out of John MacArthur has, has several pastors up in Canada. Uh, they were put in jail because they refused to adhere to the to the lockdowns. They were going, Christ said, we assemble together and we're going to assemble. Well, no, you're not. And so the The Canadian Government did something i you know you hope that the American government won 't be as aggressive, but the Canadian government very seriously put these pastors in jail uh, f- for doing nothing than uh, grabbing their flock together so uh, when they they closed the church, they shut the doors, so the pastors assembled the people out in the in the neighborhood in different homes, and so that 's when they got it rearrested. And put away for doing that. So that's the culture that we face. And um, Dr. Woods is going to come and give us the reason why Chafer Seminary is training people the way we are. Cool. Andy?
1: That's the problem when you have dueling microphones. Well, if you could take your Bible and open it to John's Gospel, uh, chapter 21 and verse 15. A lot of people look at us and say, what is wrong with you people? I mean, why do you need another school? Don't you know there's schools all over the landscape? So whenever I get a chance in these kind of sessions to address, um, you know, Chafer Seminary directly, I like to lay out the vision for the school. John 21, beginning in verse 15, it says, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, son, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The mission for the church to me is so simple. Uh, You almost have to be educated to complicate it. But Jesus was very clear. He didn't say, go out there and set up my kingdom on the earth. What he said is, feed my sheep. So that's where Chafer Seminary uh, enters the world of the local church because we always ask the question, who will fill your pulpit? Uh, Hopefully not that entity there. But you'll notice Ezekiel 34, verse 5, bottom of the screen, it says they were scattered for a lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. This is Old Testament, of course, but just a a crisis when the sheep don't have a shepherd. And when I think of verses like this, uh, or this idea of kind of uh, empty pulpit, I think of Hosea 4, verse 6, which says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Notice it doesn't say my my people are destroyed for a lack of a good marketing program. It doesn't say my people are destroyed for a lack of zeal. Uh, It says that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Hosea 4, verse 6. The book of Amos chapter 8 and verse 11 said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Close quote. I can't think of verses that better describe our age, can you? Because the number one email I get, and I'm sure you all get it, in Bible teaching ministries is people email and they say, I live in such and such part of the country or in such and such part of the world. Can you show me a um, Bible teaching ministry uh, in my area? And of course, I guess they think we're kind of like denominational headquarters where we've got this big map and say, okay, go over there. The, the truth of the matter is it's it, most of the time I don't know their area, and most of the time there's nothing in their area in terms of a faithful Bible teaching ministry. So Chafer Seminary, we believe, has been raised up by God to, to fill this specific need, to train shepherds to feed the flock of God through a rightful understanding and dividing of God's word. And so consequently, we have at Chafer Seminary seven uh, distinctives. These are seven non-negotiables. These are seven things that we will not compromise on because we believe if we compromise on any of them, we inhibit future shepherds' ability in terms of their training to fulfill the task that Jesus gave them. Um, to feed his sheep. And what makes Chafer Seminary special is I know of no school that holds to all seven of these. They may hold to some of them. Some of our sister's schools may even hold to a majority of them. But you're, you're very hard pressed to find a school where all seven converge and come together concurrently in an educational program. So let's uh, spend our time walking through these, answering the why question. You know, Why does Chafer Seminary even exist? Which, as you know from the business world, um, if you're struggling in your business and you go to a consultant for help, uh, if the consultant is worth their salt, the first question they're going to ask you is, why do you exist? And if you can't answer that, you probably don't have any business being in business. And so it's the same sort of thing here. We have to be able to articulate why we need another school, uh, why we exist. So distinctive number one is Scripture's original languages. Um, This is not something that we made up and said, Hey, let's have everybody study foreign languages. Uh, it's something that Jesus Himself articulated for the church when He said, "For truly, truly I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away. Uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished." And Jesus said, "The very smallest strokes of the pen in the original manuscripts were actually put there by divine design." And those little strokes of the pen make up the letters, and the letters make up the what? The words. And the words are very important because Christ here in Matthew 4, quoting Deuteronomy 8, said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So when Jesus started to say things like this, he's articulating an educational philosophy, which means if the very words on the page are inspired by God and those words weren't written in our native tongue, English, then we need to be able to understand Scripture in its original languages, which, of course, would be Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, And then as you probably know, some of the book of Daniel, like Daniel 2 through 7, which forms a chiastic outline, by the way, happens to be in Aramaic. And so if you want to be able to teach the Bible, you have to have some sort of facility in original languages. So original languages, it's a lot like Charlie was talking about being a plumber. Uh, We could talk about being a musician It's the kind of thing where you can't learn those skills just sitting and listening to someone lecture. You have to be in a situation where you're consistently practicing these things. So church history, learning church history is very different than learning original languages. You can learn church history. You can learn that Martin Luther was a church reformer. You could learn that he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door there in Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, you can memorize that for the test and spit it back and pass the test. Well, that's not how languages are. Languages are very difficult. Um, I've, I've never been particularly proficient at Hebrew, for one. Greek came a little easier to me. But you'll notice that when you get into original languages, you have to be able to practice and practice and practice and practice and practice, or else once you get out into the pastorate, you're not going to really have time to do that unless it's your sermons, which you should be practicing there in your sermons. Um, And so what our founding president, Dr. Meisinger, did is he went through the seminary curriculum and he deleted intentionally Uh, all of the kind of bubblegum-type classes that siphon time away from original languages because he understood that if you're going to be proficient in the original languages, every other class you bring in is sort of a competitor, and it just sucks time away from what you should be doing, which is soaking in the original languages. So you'll notice in our Chafer Seminary distinctives, it says in our catalog, we share the deep conviction. Notice it's not just a conviction, it's a deep conviction. That the teaching of the Word of God itself builds up believers in the faith for faithful service. Therefore, Greek and Hebrew exegesis, now we need to add in there Aramaic, don't we? Therefore, Greek and Hebrew exegesis is foundational to our school's educational program. So we went back to the original model of Lewis Berry Chafer, our namesake, concerning the emphasis that his original curricula, curriculum placed on original languages, and most schools don't do that. They've shrunk it to fit in all these other underwater basket weaving kind of classes. The second... Non-negotiable for Chafer Theological Seminary is the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method of interpretation, which we believe is the proper method of interpretation for keeping authority in the text and not the mind of the interpreter. So we write here in our catalog, we adopt a consistent literal, historical, grammatical, and contextual hermeneutic, look at this, in every portion of Scripture. And of course, uh, when you talk about literal interpretation, everybody throws up this straw man, well, what about figures of speech? And I don't have to talk about this because Tommy already talked about this in his presentation yesterday. Literal interpretation takes into account figures of speech when they're conspicuous in the Bible. Charles Ryrie said literal interpretation might also be called plain interpretation, so that no one receives the mistaken notion that the literal principle rules out figures of speech. Close quote. Reference has already been made to Bullinger, who was very literal. Uh, if you read what Bullinger says about Babylon in his Revelation commentary, um, he's one of the guys that completely has it right in terms of both chapters talking about the singular destruction of Babylon. He, he predates uh, what Charlie Dyer contributed by, you know, close to 100 years. And yet he is the one that gave us a book called Figures of Speech Used in the Bible, that reads like the IRS tax code. I mean, it's the thickest book, and you can find every, every possible figure of speech imaginable in that book. And so just because you're literal, it doesn't rule out um, figures of speech. But you'll notice this in our catalog. It says we adopt a consistent literal approach, and then it says to every portion in the Bible. And that's where the battle is. Because what has happened in modern-day evangelicalism is there now is an unwillingness to exercise literal interpretation in two areas, and these are the two areas where there's no eyewitness. So you're totally dependent upon divine revelation to understand it correctly. And those two areas are protology, the doctrine of beginnings, Genesis 1 through 11, and eschatology, the doctrine of the end. And that's why references has already been made to Job 38, verse 4, where God gives Job a pop quiz. Think if God gave you a pop quiz, wouldn't that be something? And he's trying to show Job how little he knows, and he asks him a bunch of questions where Job wasn't there to be an eyewitness. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, etc.? So you'll notice this quote here from William Lane Craig, who is promoted as the defender of Christianity. And he said on a podcast, I've seen comparable statistics that say over 50% of evangelical pastors think that the world is less than 10,000 years old. Now, I might correct him there. I actually believe it's 6,000 years old, but who's counting? He says, now, when you think about it, that is just hugely embarrassing that over half of our ministers really believe that the universe is around 10,000 years old. That is just scientific nonsense. And yet this is the view that the majority of our pastors hold. It's really quite shocking when you think about it, close quote. Now, in my estimation, he's not defending Christianity here. He's tearing it down. He's tearing down the foundations that Christianity is built on. He's upset that 50% of the pastors are young earth. I'm upset that 50% of the pastors are not young earth, quite frankly. But it just shows you the signs of the times. Um, This is coming from evangelicalism itself, where they've basically thrown in the towel to evolution. And they just all argue that Genesis 1 through 11 can't be approached Uh, literally. And the exact same thing is happening in eschatology. Uh, In 1994, John Walvoord was asked, what do you predict will be the most significant theological issues over the next 10 years? He responded, the hermeneutical problem of not interpreting the Bible literally, especially the prophetic areas. The church today, now this is 94, is engulfed in the idea that one cannot interpret prophecy literally, which, um, of course, is tragic. So here's an article uh, concerning the Evangelical Free Church of America, how they took premillennialism and removed it from their doctrinal statement on the grounds that premillennialism is non essential So let's do a little exercise today. Can you open your Bibles, please, to the non-essential section? (laughs) Um, I mean, I've never seen. I mean, to just say premillennialism, and I wrote I wrote a book on the kingdom, which is like 400 pages, and I barely scratched the surface of all of the verses dealing with the millennial kingdom. Um, just to say it's not essential it just shows you the mindset. So we can throw things out of the Bible if we deem ahead of time that they're non-essential. Which is tragic because Peter tells us that the prophetic word has been made more sure, which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Would you say the world is in a dark place? I mean, the only thing that keeps you sane in the midst of it is Prophecy. And, of course, as you know, 27% of the Bible was prophetic at the time it was written. So we're not we're not going to compromise on this. We're going to apply the same literal method that we apply in Romans to any other part of the Bible, taking into account conspicuous figures of speech when they show up in the text. And we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation that way, which we believe puts you in the young earth... Uh, dispensational camp. It takes you logically to pre-trib and pre-mill, pre-pre. So we don't even eat post-toasties around here. (laughs) The uh, third uh, non-negotiable is dispensational theology. And look at what our catalog says as a result of our literal hermeneutic. So, it's not like we woke up one day and said, You know, I'm just in love with dispensationalism. Let's be dispensationalists. No, dispensationalism is the product of what we said earlier a consistent literal application of interpretation. As a result of our literal hermeneutic, we are dispensational. We believe that Israel and the church are distinct entities and that God's purpose in history is uh, doxological. And you see how all of that grows out of our understanding of literal interpretation. Charles Ryrie, when he articulated the bare basics of dispensationalism, his first point was to start with the consistent use of a plain, normal, or literal grammatical historical, contextual method of interpretation, which means that we think the church is the church and Israel is Israel. That's, that doesn't come to us because we think it's a swell idea. It comes to us because a plain reading of God's word reveals that system. So our system, a, th- a theology, is only as good as the text from which it arises, and so our theology is what it is because we think it comes from a consistent application of the biblical text. And if we're premillennial, we're not busy today trying to bring in the kingdom. Because Jesus is going to do that, right? Uh, Robert Leitner um, articulated the three purposes of the church, which is to glor- all found in Ephesians and then once in Matthew: glorify God, edify the saints, and fulfill the Great Commission. Notice it doesn't talk here about bringing social justice to the earth. Hal Lindsey, in, a, in what I think is the best book he wrote, it's probably his, one of his least known books, but in terms of being an outstanding book my favorite hal Lindsey book is the road to holocaust where he says quote the last days of the church on earth may be largely wasted seeking to accomplish a task that only the lord himself can and will do directly close quote and that's the problem with all of these conferences where they're calling themselves kingdom builders They're bringing in the kingdom. They're shifting onto the shoulders of the church, something that only Jesus can do in his second advent at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. And this leads to a perverse reading of all sorts of eschatological texts. So here is Kevin DeYoung of the Gospel Coalition. He says, quote, Matthew 25 is about social justice in the sense that it's about caring for the needy. He says, Jesus says, if we are too embarrassed or too lazy or too cowardly to support the needy, we will go to hell. We should not make this passage say anything more or less than this, close quote. Now, because he doesn't have an eschatological framework, He turns this into um, kind of a social justice thing that the church should do. And it's almost a form of work salvation. But you see, if you're a dispensationalist, you understand that the sheep and goat judgment, Matthew 25, has a context to it. And it's dealing with Jesus taking his seat on David's throne uh, subsequent to his return to the earth. And it's talking about the survivors of the tribulation some saved, some unsaved. And Jesus is ascertaining who are the saved ones that are going to go into the kingdom. And who are the unsaved ones that are going to be cast off the earth into Hades. And the basis is made based on how they put their faith into action, because James says faith without works is what is dead. And Jesus is making that determination at a specific time in history based on the tribulation survivors that help Christ's brethren, the Jews, who, by the way, are going to need a lot of help during that time period. Because Satan will have been kicked out of heaven by then, permanently. And he goes to the earth and he tries to gobble up the woman or Israel knowing he has but a short time. And so people on the earth during that time will demonstrate that they're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ by helping the Jews. And so that becomes the basis of the sheep and goat judgment. So you'll notice how dispensational eschatology rescues us from this kind of interpretation. But if you chuck dispensational eschatology, then these are the kinds of things that are taught over the pulpit. Uh, It's turned into a social justice, you know, passage. The um, fourth non-negotiable is the full counsel of God's word. Because Jesus himself, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Paul said to young Timothy, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Notice the emphasis on all and every. Um, Paul, in, at the end of his third missionary journey, in Acts 20, summoning the elders at Ephesus in a port town called Miletus, said, and he's, he's shepherding shepherds, that's the context, He's, he's a pastor teaching pastors how to be pastors. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shriek, shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And when you track that language, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, and track back where that comes from, that comes right out of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 3 verses 17 through 19, Ezekiel 33 verses 7 through 9 where God tells Ezekiel you have to say everything I tell you to say because if you don't and the people die in their sin I'm coming after you Ezekiel because you're the watchman on the wall and you say well why does the book of Ezekiel say that twice because the book of Ezekiel is a symmetrically structured book. The things that happen at the beginning of the book are repeated at the end of the book. Right down to the Shekinah glory of God leaving the temple at the beginning of the book and returning to the millennial temple at the end of the book. And Ezekiel is in the first part of the book preaching judgment and in the second part of the book preaching restoration. And so Ezekiel is commissioned two times by God once in chapter 3, once in chapter 33. And what you'll see both times is God tells Ezekiel, you better say everything I've said. And if you don't, then you're responsible if the people die in their sin. Now, if you tell them everything and they die in their sin, then you have delivered yourself. And people say, oh, that's just Old Testament. No, (laughs) Um, that's why Paul is repeating that in Acts 20, verse 26, where he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Because I've disclosed to you the whole purpose of God. Which raises a very interesting point. How do you teach the whole purpose of God? How do you train pastors to deliver the whole counsel of God? We think there's basically two ways to do it. One is systematic theology. Um, all of those fine sounding Greek words, but... These are the 10 or even 11 areas, because Arnold added an area, didn't he? Israelology. And his book is just a little short one to read, right? Israelology. <laughs> um, these are the areas where God has, has spoken. And so in systematic theology, you're basically doing a biblical roundup of everything in the Bible related to these different areas. So there's no, there's no angel book in the Bible, Because the doctrine of angels is all over the Bible. So you have to be able to put it all together in a cohesive way that's logical and understandable. And that's what systematic theology is. The second way to teach people to deliver the whole counsel of God is Bible exposition. Where you learn to think synthetically through every book of the Bible. Um, I was in a church once, and I was a guest speaker, and they said, I said to them, what should I teach on? And they said, just don't do Ephesians. And I I said, why? They said, well, our pastor has been teaching Ephesians for like three years. And so then you ask, well, what's the book of Ephesians about? You've been studying it three years. What's it about? Not a single person can answer. Uh, They're very good. A lot of... uh, People in our camp are very good at straining at the veins on the leaves of the tree to the extent that they forget what the forest looks like. Now, you already know that we think original languages are very important, but there's a danger in it where you can micromanage every single technicality that you don't remember what the book of Ephesians is about. Bible exposition rescues you from that. Because original languages is a friend to Bible exposition. Bible exposition is a friend to original languages. One takes you deep into the text. The other keeps you looking at the big picture so you don't spend two years in Ephesians and have no idea what the book of Ephesians is about. So Bible exposition will teach you how to articulate a message statement for every book of the Bible and explain where the major divisions are in that book and how those major divisions contribute to the whole. That's Bible exposition. Um, When I came to Chafer Seminary, that was the contribution that I wanted to make to our curriculum because I noticed that in our circles, we have some very good technicians of original languages, But what you're blessed with can be a curse in a sense because you can lose the forest because you become so myopic looking at the trees. So our curriculum has both. It has languages and it has Bible exposition. And very sadly in some of my seminary training, some of the guys in original languages would malign the Bible exposition guys and say, well, they're not scholars over there. And it was creating a rift within departments, and we want to avoid that because we think these two go hand in hand. It's like, what's more important, is your spleen or your lung? Well, you need them both, and that's how you learn how to be somebody that teaches the full counsel of God. The full counsel of God is under serious attack today within Christianity. Andy Stanley says, first, church leaders must unhitch the church from the worldview, the value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Paul, James, and Peter elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must do it as well. Now, this is the pastor of probably one of the largest churches in the world saying this. I'm thinking to myself, Andy, and I like, I like his first name, Andy. <laughs> um, you know, the early church turned the world upside down. Didn't they do that? Yeah. And, and what, what source of authority did they use to do that? There wasn't a New Testament yet. Yeah, right. The only thing they had is Hebrew Bible. Um, he goes on and he says, guys that preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, that is just cheating. It's It's cheating because that would be easy, first of all. Well, you ought to try it, see how easy it is. (laughs) He says, that isn't how you grow people. No one in Scripture modeled that. There's not one example of that. I'm thinking Nehemiah 8, I think, is a good example. Brian Broderson, the heir apparent of or the heir of the Calvary Chapel movement. I have to be careful because I have a lot of friends in the Calvary Chapel movement that don't agree with what he's saying. And there's actually a split within that movement. But Brian Broderson's branch of it, and if you know anything about Calvary Chapel, the whole premise of it was teaching the Bible verse by verse. In fact, I developed my own philosophy of ministry since I lived in Orange County, listening to Chuck Smith teach through the Bible on Sunday nights. And Chuck Smith, if you listen to him, was a big fan of J. Vernon McGee through the Bible in five years. So the whole Calvary Chapel movement, the whole concept behind it was verse-by-verse teaching. Now you have the new generation in charge, and he says, I think you can preach through whole books of the Bible without teaching all 66 books of the Bible. So don't teach numbers, because numbers... Is summarized in the New Testament. That's, that's what he's saying. That's that's antithetical uh, to what that movement was was started on. So we do not believe that methodology is neutral. You hear this a lot. Oh, we, we're we're very conservative when it comes to doctrine, but when it comes to methodology, it's anything goes. And I'm here to tell you that isn't true. God has a method. God expects his word to be taught verse by verse because he inspired it verse by verse. And that's why they were maligning Isaiah, because of his method. For precept must be upon precept, Isaiah says. Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. The truth of the matter, folks, is the evangelical church has been preached to death. What it has not enjoyed is being taught. And we need to get back to teaching. We had a big discussion about this in our board meeting about homiletics. And a lot of us were very strong that Chafer Seminary is not about producing preachers. If you want to be a preacher, three points in a poem... There's a lot of places to go for that. We are interested in producing teaching pastors. Now, gee, Andy, how are you going to make big churches doing that? Well, here's the deal. If you teach the Bible faithfully, you know what God does? I know this from experience. He sends people into your church that need to be fed and need to be loved. And you won't have to worry about all the marketing stuff. Instead of worrying about who's going to be sitting out in those seats, just teach the Bible and God will take care of who's going to sit in those seats and be content with what God says because that's our calling, right? Jesus said, feed my sheep. The fifth um, non-negotiable is the sufficiency of Scripture. See, a lot of places they'll talk about inerrancy, But inerrancy is very different than sufficiency. Inerrancy means that what was recorded in the original manuscript is without error in things you can see like history, geography, geology, archaeology, and things you can't see like heaven, hell, Satan, demons, great white throne judgment. And so if I can't trust the Bible on the things I can see, how in the world am I supposed to trust it on the things I can't see? So we embrace full inerrancy here as a given, but what people say is, okay, well, the Bible is inerrant, but it's not sufficient because they look at the Bible much like someone looks at a piece of Swiss cheese that's got holes in it that have to be plugged with secular thought. So we say here we believe in the complete inadequacy of scripture for in it God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness we hold that the word of God by itself is sufficient to prepare a person for a lifetime of effective ministry. Paul, at the very end of his life, wrote 2 Timothy. And what is he talking about at the end of 2 Timothy? The sufficiency of the Scripture. Because he says, All Scripture is inspired by God. But look at verse 17. So that the man of God may be adequately equipped for 93% of good works. (laughs) Every good work. Which means Paul believed in the sufficiency of the Bible the sufficiency to prepare someone for a lifetime of service. Peter, at the end of his life, said the exact same thing. In Second Peter 1, 3 and 4, Peter said, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, not some things, Pertaining to life and godliness, and it goes on into verse 4, and it talks about, For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises. So the promises in the Scripture are enough to equip people for every good work. So what are people filling up these holes with? Well, all kinds of things. Basically, we're told, you know, Genesis 1 through 11 is not enough to understand origins, so we have to consult Darwin too. Uh, Church management, the pastoral epistles are not enough to teach us how to govern a local church. We've got to dip into uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs for marketing purposes. Uh, A lot of schools are moving in the direction of spiritual formation. One writer writes, my publisher Lighthouse Trails has been following this trend for 12 years and now has discovered that some of our top accreditation associations for Christian schools are requiring spiritual formation programs to be implemented in schools now before they can be accredited. Spiritual formation, I had to go through a lot of this in my seminary training, it's like you you dial into the desert fathers and the monks and you kind of learn about monastic practices in pre-Reformation Christianity and supposedly there's all this truth there that has to be brought back into the church to adequately equip the church for what God wants it to be. And that's all an attack on uh, sufficiency. And when you see this, you start to understand our reticence towards accreditation at Schaefer Seminary, because if we ever pursue accreditation, we don't want it to be at the expense of our core values. I mean, are you going to coerce us into doing something that goes against our beliefs on sufficiency just to get accreditation? So here's a guy, Lord, please talk to me. And the Lord, of course, hands him a Bible. And when you deny sufficiency, what you do not have at the end of the day is the pure word of God. When you plug up these alleged holes with all of this secular thought, you don't have the purity of the word. Peter said, like newborn babies, long for, what's the word there? Pure milk of the word. Don't just long for the word, long for the word unadulterated. That's not mixed with all of this secular thought. So that you may grow in respect to salvation. So you take a baby's milk and you mix it with, uh, I don't know, Pepsi or something. You can't expect proper nutrition. You can't expect proper maturation. You can't expect proper development. How in the world can you develop Christians into mature saints by consistently dragging into your sermons all of this secular thought because you haven't been taught right on sufficiency or you don't believe in sufficiency. So that's a, that's a non-negotiable. The sixth non-negotiable is a biblically informed worldview. Um, we've already heard reference to uh, Henry Morris's book up here, The Long War Against God, where evolution is the foundation for endless worldviews. Humanism, New Age, atheism, racism, Nazism, communism, they're all connected to evolution. Well, it's the same with the Bible. You let the Bible say what it wants, it's going to talk about politics, literature, industry, finances, music, science, art. In other words, the Bible is not just a book on how to get to heaven as important as that subject is. It's a book that speaks to every issue of life, and when you let it speak the way it wants to to every issue of life, you will have a biblically informed worldview. The Bible teaches things like divine institutions that govern all of humanity, whether people are saved or not, and these are the things that God has built into the fabric of fallen culture so that the human race can be perpetuated in spite of its perpetual sin, sin problem. There's the institution of conscience. There's the institution of marriage and the family. There's the institution of labor. There's the institution of government. There's the institution of nationalism. As you know, all of these are under attack today in the culture. So I don't really waste pulpit time telling people who to vote for. I don't mention R.D., Republican, Democrat. I try to teach the divine institutions. Because if people understand the divine institutions, believe me, they will know exactly who to vote for. And this is what we call a worldview. So a lot of our people that we bring here to our conferences, like David Noble, Noble, and others are really skilled at this. We had Sharam Hady in one year um, who's responding to this idea that in the culture they're treating Islam and Judaism and Christendom as one Abrahamic faith. We've even got the Abraham Accords built on this same premise. Um, and that's a cultural issue. And so the Bible can't just sit over here and we act like it has nothing to say about things going on in the culture because it does. Uh, That's what we mean by a comprehensive worldview. We've already referenced John Eidsmo who's on our faculty who's very skilled at this. You all know Charlie Cleff with his Framework Series who's very skilled on this. Um, Ray Mondragon who's very skilled at integrating True operational science, not science falsely called, as 1 Timothy 6 verse 20 condemns, not uniformitarianism, we've already heard from Dr. Johnson information against uniformitarianism, but understanding how the Bible harmonizes with correct operational science something testable and repeatable and observable. The Bible will harmonize with that. Ray Mondragon, Charlie Clough, all of these guys are really, really good at that. And so we think this is one of our distinctives as well, building a um, comprehensive worldview. And then the last non-negotiable is the freeness of God's grace. The catalog says we hold fast to the free to free grace, the view that God saves mankind by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. No works before, during or after the moment of initial faith in Christ contribute anything to the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that one receives through Jesus Christ. The absence of good works during or after the moment of faith subtracts nothing from one's eternal position in Christ. However, good works determine whether one will receive eternal rewards. So you notice that we do not insert any good works into justification other than the only thing that God will accept to justify the lost sinner, which is faith alone. Romans 4, verse 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. This is very Schaeferian because Schaefer said in volume 7 of his systematic theology, Upwards of 150 passages of Scripture conditioned salvation, and here he's talking about justification, upon believing only. So we don't teach people in terms of soteriology, in terms of how to share the gospel. We don't teach people to say, okay, when you get out there and share the gospel, tell them to repent of all of their sins first. In fact, I was talking to a pastor here, and he ran into a guy that said, you know, I'm really proud, I'm really doing really well, Pastor. Why is that? Well, I haven't sinned in three days. <laughs> our pastor friend out here says, says, oh, so you're really proud of that, aren't you? So you just sinned. The, the truth of the matter is nothing saves other than faith alone in Christ alone, period. Walking an aisle doesn't save. Raising a hand doesn't justify Inviting Jesus into your heart doesn't justify. It is crystal clear if you start looking into this in the Bible. 150 times faith alone in Christ alone saves. End of story. Here's just a few verses you already know. You already know these verses, so I won't read them. Genesis 15, 6, how Abram was saved. You all know John three sixteen. Acts 16, 30 and 31, what must we do to be saved? They say, believe in the Lord, you know, Jesus Christ. So we try to keep the gospel clear on the front end. Now, a lot of Christianity will applaud you at this point. Yay! Until they read the rest of our statement here. Because then we say, no works before, during, or after the moment of initial faith in Christ contribute anything. To the, gift, the free gift. It says at the very end, the absence of works during or after the moment of faith subtracts nothing from one's eternal position in Christ. See, free grace is not just saying no works on the front end, justify It's also saying that once you're justified, you have eternal security and no works, good or bad, on the other end of salvation can diminish from that. Because our schools have been infiltrated by a very rabid, aggressive reform theology revolving around P in Calvinism, the perseverance of the saints, Meaning if you don't have enough fruit, you weren't a Christian to begin with. Uh, Arminianism says, teaches a lack of security because you can do something to lose your salvation. I always ask them, well, what do you have to do to lose it? I don't know, but it's pretty bad, whatever it is. <laughs> And then the type of Calvinism that we're being exposed to today, I call it neo-Calvinism, says, okay, you got to have enough good works to prove you were saved to begin with. So both systems are pushing onto God's people this idea that you really don't know you're saved. So a lot of people believe in eternal security, but they don't believe that they know that they have eternal security. See the difference? And Arminianism robs you of it, as does the type of Calvinism that I'm seeing taught today. And so we teach that you're saved on the front end by faith alone in Christ alone. And it doesn't matter what good works you do or don't do on the back end. You're still saved if you put your faith in Christ. Now, does that mean good works don't have any... you know, meaning or value? No, because at the end we say, however, good works determine whether one will receive eternal rewards at the Bama seat. So, works on the back end are really significant for the Bama seat judgment of rewards. But they're not something that can somehow tell someone they never were saved or maybe they lost their salvation. Now, you, I, I don't know of too many schools that teach the freeness of God's grace. Uh, like ours. So we believe good works are important for the middle tense of one's salvation. And not just good works we do through our own power, but good works that God does through us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So they, ha- they contribute nothing to justification, they contribute nothing to glorification, but they do are needed to grow in salvation, which is the middle tense of salvation, sanctification. So we, call, we try to call ourselves free grace. But we have done as best we can to steer away from many of the excesses in the free grace movement. Things like outer darkness. Things like millennial exclusivism. Some believers make it into the millennium, some don't. We try to steer clear from punitive damages at the Bema Seat Judgment where Jesus is not just rewarding or not rewarding, he's beating the daylights out of people. <laughs> and we try to stay away from things like the crossless gospel. So as you get into free grace circles, what you'll see is all these sort of aberrant concepts and we want to stay free grace but not like that i mean we want we want to steer clear of that um so i hope you found this semi enjoyable um what what do we believe why do we have this school because of seven things that come together in harmony an emphasis on scripture's original languages um, a commitment to a consistent literal method of interpretation which leads to a commitment to dispensational theology. And if God's Word is really inspired in totality, then we need to be producing people that minister the full counsel of God's Word. Through a proper understanding of all areas of systematic theology and Bible exposition, we believe, number five, in the sufficiency of the Scripture. We believe that that scripture understanding, when all of it is taught, will inform naturally a comprehensive worldview. And then when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, we believe in the freeness of God's grace. And so who will fill your pulpit? Well, we're hoping that God in his providence allows us to produce people like I've described that can go into these places and uh feed the sheep as God Jesus has commanded. I'm done talking. So, I don't Do we do I don't know, do we do questions or And all the scientific questions go to Charlie just
2: Up.
1: Anyone has questions here? Excellent. It's on. Thank you. Close. Yep. Um, so my question is kind of, even within what you were saying, there's some subtle differences in free grace camp, dispensational camp, and I feel like one of the powerful outlets is a theological journal. To kind of promote our ideas of the school is there any desire or push for that at Chafer I yes, guess there is there is and that was a big subject on our at our board meeting yesterday and the idea came up and then someone said okay here's what we're gonna do we're just gonna we're just gonna pray and let God put it on all of our hearts and our executive director Mike Regal put his hand up and says, so what you're saying is you're not going to do anything about the journal <laughs> in which case I said to Mike Regal Mike thanks for volunteering to bring, the, to bring the journal back to life so we are going to resurrect the journal he, Mike Regal is forming with some folks and we're going to bring the journal back but there's going to be people like myself that are going to be gatekeepers of content awesome. okay because what we publish in that journal is supposed to be a reflection of our values right. and there's a lot of people out there wanting to publish articles that have nothing to do with what we believe so yes the journal is coming back right Mike yes, but it's coming back um, with more um, a little more caution attached to it I should say Yeah. so yeah that's that's a great great question
3: in First Corinthians twelve, we see the problem with uh, the Corinthian church that they have great zeal for the gifts of power, but uh, no interest in in the non spectacular things. And so Paul then directs, you know, redirects them. This God has given all these gifts. Now I, I hear a great zeal and great passion for who's going to fill the empty pulpit, um, but then I also hear a concern that our, our seminaries have been infiltrated by neo-Calvinism. Um, Who do we turn to for a zeal for refilling our seminaries with qualified seminary professors that are going to teach how to understand God's word? Or, or is are, are we left with Schaefer alone? And, and going forward in the next generation and generation after that, you know it has, it has our our spectrum narrowed down to solely this, or is it possible to reach back out to those seminaries and repopulate seminaries with professors that, that are interested in, in teaching these same yeah. things?
1: No, I think it's possible to raise up people to repopulate, and we don't look at ourselves as the only you know thing. There's other schools you know that are seeking to be biblically faithful. But we do think it's a need, obviously. There's a dearth, and we hope God will use our school to help fill this need. Yeah, yeah, Ray. Okay, could someone give Ray the microphone there?
0: We don't have many, but we have one, one graduate that right now is a professor at, uh, what is it, Ceteca in uh, Guatemala, and in fact, he has a great impact there, and he's kind of moving up in terms of respect.
3: Nate Pertzer,
0: so uh, just kind of a byproduct of chafers, people are called to different ministries, and he was called uh the mission field in Guatemala. So it can happen, is the point.
2: <clears throat> Andy? Uh, speaking of Nate, by the way, he teaches Greek and Spanish. <laughs> so, I think, yeah. And Hebrew, yeah.
1: So he's got the gift of tongues.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're the president, if you say so. <laughs> No, uh I know you'll have a, a nice clear answer for this, but we get accused sometimes uh when we talk about free grace if it's making it they they try to conflate it to being cheap. How do you answer that?
1: Well I just say can you find the word cheap grace in the Bible for me? I mean I don't I don't see the words cheap grace and even even the word cheap undersells grace because cheap means you bought it for something. I mean the Bible uses the words what is it at the end of Romans three justified freely by his grace. I mean, we don't well, believe in cheap grace, we believe in free grace.
2: Well I was thinking about the cost on the cross. It wasn't exactly cheap.
1: Yeah, there's no cost for us. No. no. Right. Jesus says whoever wants to end the revelation, drink without cost. Yeah. So. It's costly to him.
2: <laughs> Andy, we've had discussion on these topics mm-hmm. that I'm going to bring up, but um, we all believe in grace teaching and grace giving. The denominations, uh, seminaries, practice tithing and a little to a lot of legalism based on the money of fiat, 501c3s, and inflation, which impacts us when it comes to the cost. Of a student, uh, the first question is and it 's a short answer, how far has um, Chafer gone in linking the local church pastors to being the recruiter for Chafer students and possibly having the pastors or somebody within the church interact at the local church with their students mm-hmm. as it relates to chafer training?
1: Yeah, we do. We do have a local church partnership. Where's Charlie? Okay. Can you explain the local church um, model? Yeah,
0: uh, yeah we've uh, we've have a, a local church model that works this way. Uh, when a local church has someone who is theologically sound who has had study in different subjects, they can actually start a learning center inside that local church. And the, the the idea here is, historically, seminaries have a doctrinal statement. And pastors and churches often spend thousands of dollars sending a, a student to a seminary campus only to find that, yes, they still have that doctrinal statement, but... We have faculty members that really aren't following the doctrinal statement. And the, and the sacrifice the church has done is sending someone there, and then what kind of education you get in that course? So we're trying to protect the integrity of the local church by having a requirement that if you want to be a, a student at Chafer Seminary, we want to know your pastor's name, and we want to give him access to everything we're teaching his person. And so if we, that's one control. And the other one is if we get people inside a local church that are competent to be a faculty person, form your
2: own local center. Back here, Andy. A former board member of Chafer and I have had discussion with this on and off for 40 plus years as it relates to the need. And it's wonderful that we have the technology today to make this connect. But what caused me to start thinking on these levels back from 1926, I believe 1952, um, uh, Dallas Seminary did not charge for seminary training. And then in the 1950s, when um, men like um, Hal Lindsey, Keith Gilmore, Ralph Braun, Ron Breckel, all people we know they paid five dollars a credit hour and now at last I heard it was five hundred and fifty five dollars a credit hour and there's lots of debt and fear of expense that people can go to and the real question is under the concept of grace, what can be done where there I believe there's people out there that are more in my age bracket mm-hmm. that would be willing to go out yeah. and recruit and get the word out where they actually go into local churches and tell about um, Chafer today and what they're doing and consider the possibility, since there's a lot of churches that they can't afford mm-hmm. to spend X amount of dollars, uh, that Chafer could go viral in terms of the impact that they could have. And I personally believe, under the concept of grace, that the um, people would come. Can you make your point quickly? Because we have three people. To go and <laughs> okay. okay. No, that, let's that, do it later. Enough, okay. okay.
1: Talk later. Yeah, I would say that our rates, I don't think, are we charging $550 a unit? No. No. I was going to say, if we are, it's not going to my salary. That's <laughs> um, no, I think uh, our rates, one of the reasons our units and charge is so low is because all of our professors have a job outside of being a professor. They're actually pastors. And we also have partnerships with local churches. For example, my local church, Sugarland Bible Church, gives a certain amount of money to Chafer. Um, and once that requirement is met then everybody at my church that's a member can come for free so i think we're actually doing a lot to uh, make it extremely affordable
4: yeah yeah andy in your seventh distinctive near the end it's to say that forgiveness comes to those who come to faith in christ is that correct and that would that imply that unbelievers then are not forgiven
1: well, I would say the whole world is savable, but they're not saved until they trust Christ. Is so that then, how I would choose to articulate
4: it. So faith. then the forgiveness would come to those who believe, even though the world salvation is possible for the entire world, forgiveness is given at first faith. Would yeah, they're say?
1: no longer condemned at the point of faith. That's how I would choose to articulate
4: it. Okay. But the certificate of debt was canceled at the cross. Right, exactly. It gets complicated. And it's lunchtime. Thank you. And it's lunchtime. (laughs) Okay, coming back at 1 o'clock, we have Paul Sharf, who is with Friends of Israel, giving a 15-minute presentation, and then Camp Arete is going to give a presentation at 1.15. Okay, and then at 1.30, we start, uh, the afternoon session, and the afternoon session is all about uh understanding and proper interpretation of the olivet discourse. And the first half of the olive or the first part of the Olivet Discourse will be covered by uh, Jeremy Thomas. And then I will cover the uh second part of the Olivet Discourse. So that's the outline and plan, God willing, for the afternoon. So um We'll see you when you get back from lunch. All right? You're dismissed.